The sermon for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who ate the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I was reading a New York Times article on what the author described as a real threat to the human future. Probably a thousand guesses what that might be. So I'll start to give you some hints slowly. He said, it's the one in your pocket, not your wallet. He said, it's the one maybe on your desk he said, it's the one on what you might be reading this article. He said, the smartphone. He went on to say this, definitely if you're young, increasingly if you're old, your day-to-day, minute-to-minute existence is dominated by a compulsion to check email and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram with a frequency that bears no relationship to any communicative need. Now, he goes on in the article to say, smartphones aren't bad, they can be good within reasonable limits, they're good, but he argues that the reasonable limits have gone out the door. And then he says this, they, meaning smartphones, are the masters, we are not. 
They are built to addict us, madden us, distract us, arouse us, and deceive us. We primp and perform for them as a lover. We surrender our privacy to their demands. We wait on tender hooks for every like. The smartphone is in the saddle and it rides mankind. You say, great. I came to church this morning and the preacher's railing on my smartphone that's in my pocket. Now here's why I bring it up. Most of you can understand what it feels like to be addicted or enslaved to your smartphone. In fact, some of you right now are resisting the urge. Some of you aren't even resisting the urge (laughs) to check the JAG score in London. Put it away. You can check the score after the service. But I bring it up because it's something we all feel the compulsion to constantly be checking it. At night, unable to put it down, unable to turn it off. It's it's a great case study on idolatry, right? On something that enslaves us or something that addicts us. And I say it's a case study because when we talk about the compulsion towards something or being enslaved or being addicted, there are so many forms of it. You can be enslaved to your career, addicted to your career. You can be enslaved to a relationship. You can be enslaved to what other people think of you. You can be enslaved to the bottle. You can be enslaved to pleasure, to comfort. To it. The list goes on and on. The question becomes, how do we get free from it? How do we flee idolatry? That's the central command in Paul's passage here in verse 14. He says, flee from idolatry. Now, let me just give you some context here. End of chapter nine, Paul has that little section where he talks about running a race to win the prize. He talks about disciplining his body, keeping it under control, lest he be disqualified. Well, now in chapter 10, he's gonna give examples from Israel's history of how they were disqualified. He says in verse five, they were overthrown in the wilderness. And he says, I'm giving you these examples so that you won't be disqualified. What's interesting, when you look at Israel's time in the wilderness and you look at what Paul is saying here, how were they overthrown? They were overthrown by idolatry. And we face the same danger today of being overthrown, of being taken over, of being enslaved, addicted, by idolatry. So the question becomes, how do we flee from it? And to look at this, we're going to, or to explore it, we're going to look at the provision of God. We're going to look at the misdirected desires of idolatry. And then we're going to look at the jealousy of Christ. So let's begin with the provision of God, because you can't, you can't fully understand idolatry until you understand the provision of God. And we see in the first five verses Paul brings up two truths about the provision of God. And he's going to use two words to really explain this. And the first truth is this, the provision of God is marked by his presence, his very real presence. And that's picked up with the word cloud. Look at verses one and two. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea 
This is describing Israel's exodus from Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt. And as he brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, he led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and at night, a pillar of fire. The point is he was with them. He was visibly with them, visibly leading them. His presence was real. Even when the going got tough, as we're gonna see, when there was no food, when there was no water, the pillar was still there. When the Egyptians were barreling down on them and pinned them against the Red Sea, the pillar was there. That God's presence was with them all the time, good or bad, hard or easy. You know, several years ago, I went through this phase with my son that any time he got hurt, started crying, he would say, Daddy, where were you? Why didn't you protect me? And every time I was with him, he'd be walking, he'd trip and skin his knee. He'd start crying. He'd say, Daddy, where were you? Why didn't you protect me? Or he'd, he'd trip and fall and he'd bump his head, start crying, Daddy, where were you? Why didn't you protect me? It's exactly what Israel did in the wilderness. Hard times would come and they'd say, God, why did you abandon us? Why did you bring us out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness and abandon us? God never abandoned them. The pillar of cloud never left. The pillar of fire at night never left. God was with them. That's the first truth about God's provision is that his presence is real. His provision is marked by his very real presence. Second truth, we see with the word spiritual. It shows up in verses three and four several times. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, why this emphasis on spiritual? Why does that word appear over and over? Well, Paul's not saying that the the food, which was manna, bread in the morning, quail, meat, he's not saying that this was like extra special, holy, magical bread and quail. No, it was bread and it was quail. The word spiritual is is emphasizing that it came from God, that he was the source. He was the giver. He was giving them everything they needed in abundance and by grace. The spiritual drink that leads into the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ, that comes out of Exodus 17, where God's people were in the wilderness. They had no water. And they started to grumble and they started to complain. They started saying, God, we want to go back to Egypt. So how did God respond? He said, Moses, I want you to go over to that rock and I want you to tap that rock. And when you tap it, water's going to flow. Moses tapped the rock and water flowed. And God's people drank. And they drank. And they drank until their thirst was absolutely quenched. The same was true of the spiritual food, the manna in the morning and the quail and the meat. They could eat as much as they wanted to get their fill. God, not only his real presence was with them, but he kept providing abundantly and by grace. Do you know that every time, almost every time that God pours out water or food for them in abundance, it came on the heels of them complaining? 
grumbling, complaining, God, where'd you go? Why'd you take us out here? We want to go back to Egypt. You know what God's response is? It wasn't, well, fine, go. Try it out. We'll see how that works for you. No, God's response was, let me give you more. See, God's provision, it's his real presence and it is abundantly given and it's given by grace. Israel's idolatry began with their lack of understanding and lack of awareness of God's provision. Of his presence, they thought he had abandoned them. And of his abundant provision, they thought he was stingy. That that was the two things. They thought God had abandoned them and they thought he was stingy. And that led to their idolatry. They had what I'll call donut psychology. You know what donut psychology is? You eat a delicious pumpkin donut from Sonati's Bakery. We had two dozen back in the hallway this morning. They're gone, none left for you. You eat a pumpkin donut from Sonati's Bakery and you finish it and you complain there was nothing in the middle. Eat all this delicious goodness around the outside, then you go, where's the middle? You are primed and prepped for idolatry when you lose understanding and awareness of God's presence, his very real presence, and his abundant and gracious provision in your life. Maybe not how you want him to provide, but his abundant provision in your life. So that moves us to then what is idolatry? How does it work? If if God's provision is the first key to fleeing idolatry, understanding his presence and his abundant provision in your life, then let's move into idolatry and how it actually works. We're gonna look at the misdirected desires of idolatry because that's what's picked up in verses six through 11. And what you see in verses six through 11 is four examples in the middle of Israel's idolatry, which we're gonna get to. But verse six and verse 11 are the bookend of these examples. And those two verses say that the examples of Israel in the desert, in the wilderness, are provided for our instruction. Meaning that all of that happened and it was written down for our instruction, for us to learn something about idolatry, to learn how it functions, to learn how to flee it. And the key to understanding idolatry is the end of verse six. Written down for our instruction so that we might not desire evil as they did. Now I'm gonna take that phrase, desire evil. There is nothing wrong with desire. In fact, you and I are made as desiring beings. We have desires, we were made that way. And not only are we made with desires, but we are actually made for those desires to be satisfied and met. That is how we're made. Idolatry is when those desires get directed at things and or people that can't ultimately satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. 
That's what idolatry is. When our desires, which are from God, we are made to be a desiring people. When those desires are directed towards something or someone that cannot satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what does it look like when our desires start to get directed towards things and people that cannot satisfy? And this is where Paul gives us four examples of it happening in the life of Israel, and you're gonna see the examples absolutely are pertinent to today and how our desires can get derailed and misdirected. And, and, and all four of these examples fall into two categories that, that speak towards one major form of idolatry. The first two examples, which are in verses seven and eight, okay, are gonna, are gonna show us desires that get misdirected towards pleasure, okay? And what you're gonna see is that in Israel's history, it all started with impatience. Impatience, God wasn't there, God wasn't providing, right? Which led to the, direct, the desires getting directed towards something else. Look at verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that quote comes from Exodus 32, which is the story of the golden calf. God's people come out of Egypt. God rescues them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. He brings them to Mount Sinai to give them the 10 commandments, which is really just God saying, now that I've rescued you from sin and slavery, here's the design for life. That's what the 10 commandments are. He brings him to Mount Sinai, at the foot of Sinai, has Moses go up to the top of the mountain to receive him. Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He had maybe been gone for a day or two before that with them. 40 days, long time, God's people get impatient at the base of the mountain. They say, Moses is gone, what's going on? And they say to Aaron, Aaron, make for us gods to go before us. And so Aaron says, great idea. Give me all your gold jewelry. So they turn in all their gold jewelry they had brought out of Egypt. And Aaron fashions a golden calf. You say, why a golden calf? That was the golden calf in Egypt represented a number of the Egyptian gods. They were going back to Egypt. They were going back to those gods, what they knew. So he fashions the golden calf. And then here's what's interesting. The people said to Aaron, make, make us gods that go before us. And then Aaron says to them, after he makes this golden calf, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh, to the one true God. You see what was happening? They didn't reject God. They just added gods to provide for them in a way that they thought God wasn't or couldn't. See, that's the danger of idolatry. More often than not, most of the time, idolatry does not involve a willful and conscious rejection of God. 
It involves in either disappointment because of his perceived abandonment or stinginess. He's not providing as you would like him to provide. We, we, we add gods. We, we turn to idols to provide in the way we want to be provided for. And so it's this dual worship. And that's what was happening in Exodus 32. And so after they, he built the calf, they actually offered, they made offerings to God, to Yahweh. And then it says they ate and, drunk, or ate and drank and rose up to play. That word play there, it means sexual play. Here's what happens. They worshiped God, they, they, they gave offerings to Yahweh, and then they had a massive party of good food, good drink, and good sex. That's what went on in Exodus 32. It was this dual worship. And then it happens again in, in verse eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's describing Numbers 25, where God's people started worshiping the false god of Baal. And then it said they hoard with the daughters of Moab. Same thing going on in Numbers 25. Here's what we learned from this. When you functionally, and, I, and I'm saying functionally, not intellectually what you would profess, but when you functionally believe that God has abandoned you, and when you functionally believe that he is not providing for you, also known as he's not providing in the way you would wanna be provided for, you are, you are prepped to take your desires and turn and direct them towards a pleasure that is gonna meet you in the moment and complete you and provide for you. Whether it's food, drink, uh, sex, football, vacation, whatever pleasure it may be. Now here's the deal. None of those are wrong. God provides pleasures. He provides simple pleasures in life, right? Food tastes good. It's not just functional. Right? He provides pleasure, but those pleasures are always just a parable of something greater. That the pleasures in this life are a parable of the greater, deeper, more soul-satisfying or the only soul-satisfying pleasure found in a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Right? And so when our, when, our, when our desires get redirected towards pleasure as the, as the thing that's gonna satisfy because we're disappointed with God, we've entered idolatry instead of seeing pleasures as simply a parable of something greater that are supposed to drive us to the one in whom we find pleasure, Jesus Christ. So that's the first component that comes out, right? Pleasure as a, as a, as a place for misdirected desires. The second, the second comes in verses nine and 10. And again, we're gonna see here, impatience, complaining. Verse nine, Right? Verse nine describes a scene from Numbers chapter 21. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. What was going on there? Well, God was getting towards the end of their journey in the wilderness of taking the Israelites into the promised land. And they came to a place called Edom. And God decided to redirect them around south, around Edom, because Edom was a heavily armed nation and Edom was not letting Israel pass through. So God directed them south around Edom. The most direct course to the promised land was north through Edom. God took them south into the wilderness, a very dry and arid region. They had no food, they had no water. What did they do? They complained, they grumbled. They said, God, we wanna go back to Egypt. 
We need comfort. Give us our earthly comfort of food and water. And here's the reality in that story. In Numbers 21, God was protecting them. God was loving them really well, protecting them from Edom, taking them away. And so what you see is Israel, though they didn't know of that protection, the moment, Israel was demanding earthly comfort over God's protecting love. Now that one hits home. How often do we demand earthly comfort when in reality, we're saying no to God's protecting love, that he may be withholding something? I'm gonna say something here, and it's just gonna be blunt, and it's gonna be straightforward, and then I'm gonna explain it, okay? God does not care about your earthly comfort. God does not care about your earthly comfort. Now, let me explain that. He does bless you with material things. He does bless you with material good from time to time. But that's never to be your source of comfort. He blesses you that your heart would be turned to him, that you would find your comfort in him. But the reality is, and this is all of us, we spend a vast majority of our lives, of our time and energy, trying to secure earthly comfort, something God doesn't care about. He cares about you finding your comfort in him. Now that means that sometimes he may bless you with material good. He may bless you with something that's good, with the intent of your heart being driven to him as the giver the abundant giver to find your rest in him. But then there's times where he sends discomfort and he sends that discomfort so that you will find your comfort fully in him. Misdirected desires of idolatry, they, they get misdirected either towards pleasure as the fulfillment or they get misdirected towards comfort as the fulfillment. This past summer, my son was at a, it was a half day summer camp and uh, they had, it was really cool. They had this inflatable Velcro wall. And a kid would put on a Velcro suit. And he would start jumping up and down on the, the inflatable bottom. And at some point, he would launch himself into the wall. Okay, and this inflatable wall had a, had a piece of Velcro. Here was what was fun to watch. Sometimes the kids would bounce and they'd launch and they wouldn't hit the Velcro. And so they'd smack the wall and they'd fall right back down onto the inflatable bottom. And then they'd get up and they'd bounce again and they'd launch themselves into the wall. And when they hit that Velcro, bam! They would stop and stick and just hang there on the wall. You and I are born into this world in a Velcro suit, so to speak. We are made to stick. And when we direct our desires towards something and someone other than Christ, inevitably we hit the wall and we fall. We can launch ourselves into a relationship hoping to stick, hoping to find our deepest desires satisfied. We can launch ourselves into a career 
hoping to stick, hoping to find our deepest desires satisfied. We can launch ourselves into the bottle or into a substance hoping to stick. We can launch ourselves into any kind of shallow pleasure or any kind of earthly comfort hoping to stick. But inevitably, inevitably at some point, we come crashing down. Why? Because we were made to stick in one place. That brings us to our third point. How do you flee idolatry? You recognize, embrace the provision of God. Understand the misdirected desires of idolatry. But third and finally, cherishing the jealousy of Christ. Here's the question. When you find your desires directed at things that cannot satisfy, what is your hope for redirection? Right? If you find your desires directed at something, pleasure, comfort, whatever it may be, cannot satisfy, what's your hope for your desires to be redirected to God? Is it just muscle up? Muscle up? Change my, reroute my desires? Is it accountability? Is it something you do? Now the answer is yes at some point, but that's not the beginning of it. Look at the beginning, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know what that means? Fleeing idolatry starts by you believing that you can't get free from it. That's the beginning. That you can't get free from it. That you can't try hard enough. That you're not strong enough to get free from it. Then verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God will also provide the way of escape. That word temptation there, it can mean temptation. It can mean trial. It can mean testing, which means it includes more of the traditional temptation to do something that's sinful. It can include a season in life of heavy trial, of heavy suffering, of heavy hardship that tempts you to try to find a quick sinful relief. And all that's included. But what it says is this. God will not let your idolatry crush you. That's what it says. That God fights for you. And he will not let your idolatry crush you. That he's for you. You know, this this absolutely speaks against the, the thought that God's against us, or probably better yet, that God almost sits back with his arms folded and kind of shakes his head at you when you engage in idolatry and disappointment and kind of heaps on the condemnation and the guilt? No, this says that God is fighting for you. He's rescuing you from your idolatry. He's for you. What is absolutely critical to see here is look where verse 14 falls. Verse 14 is the command to flee idolatry. What does it come after? God's promised way of escape. That means that God fights for you. God provides the way of escape. Then he says, now flee. Not reversed. Hey, go flee idolatry. And if you do a good job at it, I'll provide a way of escape. No, no, God fights for you. He provides the way of escape. Then he says, okay, now go flee. 
So what's the way of escape? Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup of blessing, this was part of the Passover meal as, as Israel was being rescued from Egypt. They would celebrate the Passover. On this side of the death and resurrection of Christ, the Lord's Supper has replaced or fulfilled Passover. See, the Lord's Supper is an invitation from Christ to dine with him. It's an invitation from Christ to fellowship with him, to eat with him, to have a relationship with him. That is the way of escape, is to dine with Christ. And what we see here in this passage is there's two invitations. And it's spelled out by Paul saying, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There's two invitations. One is an invitation to Christ. One is an invitation to idolatry. And they are so different. The invitation from Christ is, come eat with me for free. The invitation of idolatry is this. The idol, an idol or a false god demands more and more from you and returns less and less, which is why idolatry leads to addiction, right? An idol says, keep, bring all your gold jewelry, bring more and more, right? Exodus 32, golden calf. Give me more and more, the idol says, and it returns less and less. The invitation from Christ is, you come as you are, you come dine with me. This meal has been paid for by my blood. I paid for this meal in full by my blood. I died for your idolatry. Now come, join me for a meal. It's relational. You remember that story in Numbers 21 that I just told. God took his people instead of through Edom, he was protecting them, protective love. Took them around Edom. And when he took them around, they started complaining. So what did God do? He sent snakes amongst them. He sent serpents. They thought they were uncomfortable when they didn't have food or water. Things got really uncomfortable when he sent snakes that bit them. It was their consequence for idolatry. Idolatry will always, in the end of the, in the, end of the road, lead to death. But what did he do? He sent the snakes amongst them. They started getting bitten. They started dying. God told Moses, I want you to form a, fashion a snake. I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to raise it up. And if they get bit by a snake, all they have to do is look up at that snake on a pole and they will be healed and they will live. John picks it up in his gospel in John chapter three, that same story when he says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the midst of your idolatry, God fights for you. He provides the way of escape by sending his son to die a bloody death in your place that you deserve to die because of your idolatry. He was raised up on a tree. He was raised up on a cross. And the gospel says, and the Bible says, if you simply look to Jesus in faith, that you will be healed, that you will be forgiven, that you will have eternal life. That's the promise of the gospel. And as you look up at Christ, You're looking at the one who is unwilling to share you. That's what verses 18 to 22 get after. Look at them. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, the table of demons. And then here it is. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is unwilling to share you. His love is a jealous love. If you're married, it is good news that your spouse is unwilling to share you with someone else. That is good news. Well, your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is unwilling to share you, the bride, with anyone else. There's a beautiful story of this in the scriptures. It's in the book of Hosea. Hosea's wife runs after other lovers, commits repeated adultery over and over. You know what God says to Hosea? Let me tell you what he doesn't say. Hey, let her go. She's making a mess of things. Look, she doesn't love you. Look at her chasing after those other lovers. Let her go. You deserve better. Forget it. No, that's not what he says. What he says to Hosea is shocking. And what I want you to see when I read it is Hosea is a picture of Jesus Christ as our bridegroom. Listen to what he says. God says to Hosea, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So Hosea bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And he said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Do you know how Jesus responds to your idolatry? He pursues you and he purchases you with his own blood on the cross and then says to you, you shall be mine. I will not let you be destroyed by false gods and idolatry. You are mine. So now, basking in that secure, soul-satisfying love of Christ, verse 14, flee idolatry. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that we are idolaters, that our desires get directed, misdirected to so many things, pleasures and comfort, to people and to things that leave us empty, that leave us falling on our backs. And yet in the midst of our idolatry, Father, you pursue us and you provide a way of escape in your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, shed his blood, paid fully for the meal that we are invited to. Father, as we think about dining with your son, Jesus, we're reminded, and we do it in the Lord's Supper, but we're reminded that one day is coming, Jesus, when you return, when we will dine in a feast in your presence. Oh, Father, I pray for those this morning that are here, 
that are wrapped up in the claws of idolatry and don't feel like they can get out? Would you impress upon their hearts that they can't on their own? Would you impress upon their hearts by your spirit, the one, you, Jesus, who has come to rescue them? And would they respond, Jesus, to your invitation to come dine with you and to eat with you and to have fellowship with you and to find those deepest desires satisfied? Fathers, we continue to worship and we sing to you. We sing loudly that our salvation and our freedom from idolatry is by grace alone, through Christ alone. We pray this all in his name. Amen.